Not long ago, uh, Emily had a conversation with a couple of women who uh, work with uh, troubled girls, teenage girls who are from uh, troubled backgrounds. And through the course of this conversation, um, the, the topic of teenage pregnancy came up. This wasn't surprising to us. This isn't a new phenomenon. But, but was, what was surprising to me when Emily told me this was that these aren't accidental pregnancies. These, these girls are getting pregnant on purpose. And what was shocking to me, not just surprising, but shocking was the reason they had for trying to have babies. See, these girls were having babies because they were desperate to feel loved. And they thought that having a baby would make them feel loved. So the logic goes something like this. I, I don't feel like anyone loves me. I don't feel like anyone is totally committed to me. And I know that, that a baby is totally dependent upon his mother or her mother. So if I have a baby, that baby will always look to me for his or her care. And then I will be needed. I will feel loved. These girls are so desperate to feel loved that their plan is to have a baby to fill that void. And of course, the, the problems with the plan are, are abound. I mean, first of all, there's no use for any sort of father figure in all of this. I mean, these girls have evidently totally given up on the idea that someone would be committed to loving them for the rest of their life. The, the idea of a, a, a committed, loving marriage is totally gone for them. They've totally given up hope of that. Further, it's, it's just short-sighted. It fails to account for the, uh, the difficulties of parenting, especially the difficulty of being a single parent. Furthermore, the uh, poor home environment that many of these girls come from has not prepared them to be good, caring, loving mothers. So they don't often have basic skills of how to care for these babies. And then finally, it's simply ineffective at providing the love that these girls need. They feel this deep need for love, but a baby's never going to do that. And eventually, as those babies get a little older, and as they become toddlers and preschoolers, and as they enter school, well, their social needs go beyond just their mother. And, and these mothers then think, well, I'll have another baby, and, and that baby will then give me the, the feeling of love that I need. And so the pattern repeats again and again. See, all these seemingly obvious problems don't stop these girls from carrying out this plan of, of having babies to feel loved because they are desperate to have some feeling of love and they've looked elsewhere and they've not found it. They're desperate to feel loved. Everyone needs love. And that's why the passage of Scripture that we're reading this morning is so important for us to hear. We're in Isaiah chapter 55. This is a passage that, where God invites humans who are desperate for love, humans like these teenage girls. He invites these people to come and experience his great love. So we're in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if, if you haven't already done that. Um, if you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 733, and you'll want to have this open as we uh, move forward this morning. So Isaiah chapter 55, we're going to see that first God is going to make an offer that just seems too good to be true. And then after giving that offer, he's going to show how it can be true and is true. So first, God makes an offer 
that is simply too good to be true. Look at the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 55 with me. God says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is a global appeal of God to those who are needy to come to receive what they need. It's a global appeal that is simply unbelievable in its, in its scope and in its simplicity. Those who are thirsty, come, have water. Those who can't afford food and drink, come, buy without cost, buy without money, receive this provision. See, God calls out to a needy world and offers exactly what is needed. Those who are thirsty have a desperate need for water, and that is exactly what God offers come to the waters but maybe they're hungry and thirsty because they can't afford food and drink maybe they just don't have the money for it and god said that that doesn't matter this invitation doesn't doesn't it doesn't matter if you have resources for this this doesn't depend on human resources come even if you have no money no way to afford this come receive the provision of god Come, eat and drink. And, and not just water, but, but milk, but wine. These are rich gifts. So God opens his arms to needy humans and says, Come, I have provided the best you could ever hope to find, and it is free to you. So God offers a rich gift to his people out of his own resources. And we might think, well, if it's a gift, why would you mention the transaction at all? Why would you say come and, and buy something if, if you're just going to give it, if it's not going to be, if it's a gift, you know, if you're not going to take money for it? We would just, when we give gifts, we don't say come buy this without money. We say here, this is yours, it's from me. But I think the language here used, it says come buy without money, without cost, that legitimates the transaction. In other words, what is offered here is not free because it's cheap. It's not valuable. It's worthless or, or even perhaps free because it's stolen. This is free because someone else has paid the cost for it. This is something that is highly valuable. It's a true need and it's offered to you legitimately. Someone has paid the price for this and they're now offering it to you. If you look at these first few verses, you see that the writing style accentuates how urgent this appeal is. There are a, a dozen commands in these short verses. Come, come, buy, eat, come, listen, hear, come. God is saying, you, you have to hear this message. This is a message for you. This is what you need. Come. But we might hear that urgent appeal and, and begin to be a little bit leery because we've heard this kind of message before. Come, buy this, no money down, no interest for five years, no waiting, satisfaction today. You'll never find another deal like this. Buy today, come now. And so 
we hear this urgent appeal that God is giving and maybe we start to think that there has to be some sort of small print here. Something is not right here. But there's a substantial difference between what we've heard a million times from advertisers and what God is offering in Isaiah 55. See, every advertiser in the world is, is simply trying to get you to buy something because they want your money. I mean, that's the root of what an advertiser does. So when a company tells you to come and buy, it's because they want your money. We know this. This, this makes sense to us. But when God says, come and buy, it's not because he wants your money. It's because you need what he's offering, and he wants to provide that for you. We've heard this message, come and buy, zero down, zero monthly payments, so long that we forget that God has always wanted to bless us with his good presence. He has always, from the very beginning of creation, wanted what is best for his creatures. God tells us to come and to buy because we are in need and he is offering exactly what it is that we need. And he says, come buy without money and without cost because first of all, it would be impossible for us to ever afford what God is offering. And second, God has already paid the price for us. Come buy without money, without cost. So in this first verse, it highlights on the one hand the poverty of those who are in need, and on the other hand it highlights the the rich, satisfying, free gift of God's provision to his people. And in case that is not enough to get us to come and to eat, to listen to God's appeal, verse 2 builds the case even more strongly. Look at that verse. He says, Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. In other words, he's saying, you are spending your money on, on junk. It's not even food. It might be called food or be billed as food, but that's nothing. That is not food at all. And what you are spending all of your energy trying to get is not satisfying at all. It's, it's nothing. It's an illusion. You are wasting your resources on, on worthless things. You need to stop that and gain true satisfaction from the gift of God. The contrast between what God is offering at no cost and what we as humans typically settle for, as we strive for, is staggering. What God offers is drink for the thirsty, food for the hungry, Rich, fair, satisfying food. And yet what we tend to spend our lives on is not satisfying at all. It's not food at all. It's empty. It's nothing. And yet this is exactly what we do. We ignore the good food that God offers us freely and we spend our lives fighting for the privilege of eating some unsatisfying regurgitation that's labeled food. At the risk of making things uncomfortable, probably the most obvious example of this is pornography. At heart, pornography is trading real food for fake food. And everyone's buying. It's a thriving industry. Even within the church, this is a major problem for both men and women. 
See, human sexuality is the real food. Human sexuality was designed by God to be the ultimate physical expression of intimacy between two people, two people becoming one as they are united in this self-giving, other-focused love. When sex is within the marriage relationship, a committed marriage relationship, it is beautiful. There's no oppression, no exploitation, no harm. It's a beautiful gift. And yet, pornography totally destroys that gift of sexuality by inverting its purpose. Instead of being an expression of intimacy that is shared between two people, sex becomes a tool for self-indulgence that isolates the one watching while fueling an industry that is built on oppression and exploitation. Pornography trades the sexual intimacy of marriage for an illusion that will never satisfy and that can only destroy the lives of those who watch and those who are watched. And if you have ever fallen for the trap of pornography, you know that this is true. You know that that is not real food. This is fake food. It is not satisfying. It leaves you empty and broken. That's not what you want at all. What you want is intimacy with another human being. But you have settled for an alternative that will only enslave you in a desperate search for love. And this is what we do. God offers us the finest food available, food that he has paid for, and we turn away from it. Earlier in our marriage, uh, Emily and I went to a restaurant outside Chicago called The Melting Pot. It's a, uh, it's a fondue restaurant. So this is the kind of place you go and you spend several hours over a meal. This isn't a just quick get a half-hour meal and go home. This is... Uh, an expensive, lavish meal. You have your first course of, of cheese fondue and you've got bread and, and fresh uh, vegetables and all these things, delicious food. And then the next course comes and you've got this tray of meats and, and other uh, great food and you're dipping that in your fondue pot and cooking it there. And, and it's a, a lingering meal, lingering conversation. And then finally the chocolate fondue comes and you've got your, your fresh fruits and your, your cakes It's the kind of meal that is truly satisfying. You think this is what a meal is supposed to be. And it was even better because this was an anniversary gift from someone else that they had given us, so (laughs) someone else pays the tab. And that's what God is offering. He is offering you the richest fare possible on his tab. And we're sitting here playing with little fake plastic fruit. We're spending the same amount of money on what is not food at all, and we're trying to consume it and finding that it's nothing, totally unsatisfying. This is the very crux of human existence. You and I are caught in this battle where we direct all of our resources, all of our time and our our efforts and our money on, on things that just have no lasting value when right here, offered freely, all along, is what we really need, what is deeply satisfying. And so when we read these verses, we are forced to ask ourselves the question, am I wasting my money and my energy on things that are of no lasting value? For different people, this is 
different things. We, we waste our resources on different things. For some of us, this is we, we waste our time and our energy on a sub-Christian view of work. Our, our job becomes the focus of our existence, the, the one thing. We, our identity is shaped by our, our income or our position or our ability to provide for our family. But that's making a secondary thing primary. Your job will never provide the deep meaning that you need. For a great many of us, we waste our time and our money on entertainment. And we as a culture spend gobs of time and money on things like sports and video games and computers and technology. Any form of entertainment. We've given up on the the sense that there can be anything deeply meaningful in life. And so we think, well, I might as well at least be mildly amused. And so every evening we go home and the glowing screen will lull us slowly into a coma. Or, for others of us, we will inject ourselves with mind-numbing adrenaline as we mash buttons to fight fake zombies somewhere to save a fake world. But that, too, is a wasted life. None of that is ultimate. We, we, make, ultimate, we make secondary things ultimate because we, we simply have given up hope that there could be something ultimate, that there could be something deeply satisfying about this. But none of that is of ultimate value. None of it is the real, rich, satisfying food that God offers us. The truth is that most of us spend most of our lives in oblivion to the fact that what we really desire, what we really need, is offered to us without cost, freely. See, the bizarre truth of human existence is that we keep wasting our precious resources on worthless things when all along we are offered the one thing that we need without cost to us. We are offered the infinite joy of a relationship with God, the infinite joy of God's presence. And yet we tend to choose to be mildly amused instead. Now that could be a pretty depressing message, but Isaiah 55 is not a depressing chapter. This is a a message of good news because God is offering us an escape from that prison that we put ourselves in. He says, stop spending your money and your labor on unsatisfying things. Receive what I am giving you. This is true life. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. We are not stuck in futility. If you are thirsty, go to the water. If you are hungry and cannot afford food, go to the source of provision. God offers you and me satisfaction from his loving presence. And the only thing that's required of us is to come and to listen and to have life. Now, surely that is too good to be true. And, but God explains why this offer is not, in fact, too good to be true, but why it is, in fact, a genuine offer. This is what God will do. Look at the next verses, starting in the second half of verse 3. God says, 
I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. See, this is why the first section of Isaiah 55 is possible. This is why that's reality. God makes an everlasting covenant with humans based on his love. In other words, it is the love of God that makes this whole picture possible. Perhaps you've heard something of God's love. Perhaps somewhere along the line you've heard a verse, for God so loved the world. And so we have a sense that God loves us, at least in some way. We need to know that God's love is not the fickle, fluctuating, here today, gone tomorrow, sappy, sentimental, self-centered emotion that we tend to pass off as love in our society. An emotion that is so well articulated by a band called The Doors in a song that says, Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? God's love is not like that. God's love is committed love. The word translated faithful love in my translation is the Hebrew word chesed, a love that's rooted in a covenant faithfulness, commitment. August has a a children's Bible at home that has my favorite translation of this word. This is what it says for this word. This is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that a great translation? A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's the kind of love that the teenage girls in our community need to hear about. And that is the love that God has for us. It's the love that moves God to this offer from the first three verses of Isaiah 55. Come, enjoy the richest fare at no cost to you. It's because of God's love. It is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that moves God to act so rightly toward humans. It's God's love that dictates his actions toward us. But the specifics of how that love works out in human history are are vitally important if we're to really understand the depth of this passage. This is the faithful love that God promised to David. That's why David is brought up in verse 3 here. God had told David that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel as king. And God had said that David's descendants who were king must be committed to God. They must love God with all their heart if this is going to work out. Well, if you know Israel's history, David's descendants did not do as they were supposed to. They didn't do their part. They did not love God with a committed, always and forever love. And so we might think, well, I guess the whole thing is off then. But that's not how God works. See, David himself knew something of the character of God. He knew who God was. He was a witness to the peoples of the world that this God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was a God that they needed to hear about. So you read the the Psalms and you hear the great testimony of David to the greatness of God. Hear just a little piece of one of David's Psalms from Psalm 16. David says, 
Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, David has tasted the food that God is offering in Isaiah 55. It is God's presence that fills him with joy. It is God's presence that gives him eternal pleasure. So he is a witness to the nations, it says in verse 4, because he's saying this is who Yahweh is. This is the true God. Here is where you find life. But if we really want to know about God's love, we have to follow David's descendants too. David's descendants did not love God faithfully. And yet God was still determined to show the world what never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love really looks like. And so God would provide a king to sit on David's throne. David's sons could never live up to the role of witness and ruler and commander that David was called to. But a son of David would come to be the true witness, the true ruler, the true commander. Generations after Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 55, the true son of David was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born to be the king who sits forever on David's throne, the one who is true witness. Jesus shows God's faithful love, love that never stops, love that never gives up, love that never breaks, love that is always and forever present. That is the love of God that moved God to keep his promises to David, even when David's sons failed. And it is this son of David, Jesus himself, who makes verse 5 possible in all. Surely you will call nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God has extended the scope of his love beyond this particular people, Israel, to include people from all over the world, every country, every nation, every people group, every language group. God's love is global. And this truth is happening even today. People from all these different countries are even now recognizing that this is the true God. See, God has sent out missionaries around the world to proclaim the gospel message, that the good news that God loves the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to live and to die so that we have life. This is the message of God's love and is going out all around the world even today. 
And that's the same message that we have a joy of participating in too. We as Christians have a responsibility here in our community to be missionaries, to proclaim this good news of God's love to a community that desperately needs to hear a message of God's love. See, we have heard of the great love of God. We've experienced it in Jesus Christ. And now we want everyone else to know that love too and to worship this God with us. And really, that's the only way that the last clause of this passage in verse 5 can ever be possible. It says, For He has endowed you with splendor. He has made you beautiful. Well, the church is only beautiful. Israel is only beautiful to the extent that God has given us a beautiful message of His love. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God makes the church beautiful by giving us the beautiful message that God loves the world so much that He sent His one and only Son into the world. Whoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Or, put differently, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I only have one thing I want you to hear this morning. God loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. And when that message really sinks in, when you really know that message, it will change your life. Then you know that you don't have to keep exhausting yourself after what the world is calling food that you can then see is not food. You can stop exhausting yourself in pursuit of things that the world says are satisfying that are simply not satisfying. You are able to stop searching desperately for any form or feeling of love that you can find because you will know that God loves you. You are loved by God. God loves you more than you could ever imagine possible. When you finally understand that, you are then free to pour out your life for others, to to show them that this message is true. God really does love you. There is something of, of ultimate value. There is something that is deeply and truly satisfying. God loves you. To the message of Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. Listen. 